0: Episode of Chatting Tonight. I felt that this 1985 hit, We Are the World, from USA for Africa, was very fitting as our little opener as we take a peek at Global Citizen. Its mission, its machinations, its math. Well, Kind of, because I pretty much, like, hate math. I, like, love hate math, okay? Because, like, when the numbers get real big, my brain gets real, real small. Anywho, it could be an exciting episode. I don't know. We're going to kind of freestyle this and learn together. So let's get into it. Before we delve into, you know what? No, wait. delve is too strong a word because you know me. I'm very superficial. So, before we superficially look at Global Citizen, I do want to digress for just a minute or two because, well, my brain is kind of an asshole. And I got curious after the We Are the World thing as to, like, if we could even figure out exactly how much aid has been given to Africa, or even just like a, an approximation, you know, just for shits and giggles. Because let's face it, 1985 was a long ass time ago. But I feel like maybe I should say sorry here, um, because here's that part where it, like that math hurts my brain and my feeling because I'm old. Um, editor's note, I'm also very aware that aid to Africa existed prior to 1985, and I am also not judging the need for aid, okay? I'm just, I'm just judging, okay? So, what I did in my research, because you know me, I love to Google, and if you Google stuff and you find it, it's not stealing. (laughs) That's just a... That's a little inside joke I'm just throwing in there. So in 2022, we, the United States government, gave six billion dollars. In 2021, it was 8.5 billion. And that's just what we know. And so I stumbled across this paper from the Congressional Research Service titled US Assistance for Sub-Saharan Africa, an overview. And while I won't read the whole thing, it's 24 pages and that's ridiculous. I will post links, of course, everything that I'm talking about here. And really all of this is just to sort of answer my own trivia question, but I thought maybe you guys might be interested in in it as well. So the objective and the delivery of this paper uh, reads as follows. Unless noted, this report focuses on State Department and USAID-administered funds. Over the past decade, approximately 70% of U.S. assistance for Africa has sought to address health challenges, primarily HIV and AIDS. Other assistance has aimed to foster agricultural development and economic growth, strengthen peace and security, improve education access and social service delivery, and strengthen democracy, human rights, and governance. Much of this funding is provided under multi-country initiatives focused largely or wholly on Africa, including the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the President's Malaria Initiative, Feed the Future, Prosper Africa, and Power Africa. And then it goes on and on, and there's an introduction. But what I wanted to kind of just touch on right here is the historic trends and key rationale. Africa has received a growing share of annual U.S. foreign assistance over the past two decades, accounting for 36 of State Department and U.S. aid administer funding allocated for specific regions in FY 2021, which is the latest available, I'm not sure what that is, uh, from 31% in 2011 and 10% in 2001. U.S. assistance for the region grew markedly during the 2000s as Congress appropriated substantial funds to support the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which the Bush Administration launched in 2003 with bipartisan support in Congress. As discussed below, assistance to combat HIV-AIDS remains by far the largest category of U.S. Assistance for Africa development and security aid for Africa also increased during the 2000s, albeit to a lesser extent. U.S. assistance for Africa was comparatively flat over the past decade, generally fluctuating between $7.6 billion and $8.3 billion in annual inflation-adjusted dollars. It then goes on to read that these figures, and I think this is kind of like the most important part, these figures do not include funds administered through global accounts or programs such as humanitarian assistance. They also exclude funds administered by other U.S. federal entities, such as the Millennium Challenge Corporation and Department of Defense, and U.S. contributions to international financial institutions and other multilateral bodies, such as the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and United Nations agencies. Policymakers, analysts, and advocates continue to debate the value and appropriate balance of U.S. assistance programs in Africa. Proponents contend that foreign assistance helps African countries address pressing challenges, e.g. development and humanitarian needs, while advancing U.S. national interest, of course, such as bolstering U.S. economic relations abroad and promoting U.S. influence vis-a-vis that of global competitors such as China and Russia. Some also contend that U.S. assistance reflects U.S. values of charity and global leadership. Critics have alleged that foreign aid may create market distortions or dependencies, or have other unintended consequences, such as prolonging conflicts or strengthening undemocratic regimes. Some African commentators have criticized the nature of donor-recipient relationships, describing them as shaped primarily by donor prerogatives rather than by the needs and demands of recipient countries, or as benefiting international implementers over local authorities and organizations. More broadly, some members and others have called for a reorientation of U.S. engagement in Africa to de-emphasize U.S. assistance relative to U.S. commercial engagement, calling for trade, not aid, promote development in the region. Other considerations related to U.S. assistance for Africa and issues for Congress are discussed below. And then it goes on and it breaks it down into sections like health assistance and then subsections like HIV AIDS, malaria, maternal and child health, family planning, global health security and other assistance and shit like economic growth assistance. And that's broken down into like agricultural development, trade and investment, climate change and environment and other. And it ends with outlook and issues for Congress. But uh, Congress is in and of itself its own issue. But let's get into that gentle rant another day. I just want to touch base for a second before we quickly move on to the next article to just make sure that we're all on the same page here. And that same page is being that you know that I'm not smart, right? Okay, because like, I know that I'm not smart. I know that I don't know things and that I'm not smart. I I can admit that. But I do know that I kind of want you to feel as exacerbated as I do. So before I pick a little bit out of the one data and analysis, the ODA, I wanted to read a good portion of an article from FEE, which is the Foundation for Economic Education. Now, The caveat being here is that it is from 2001, and I am just sure (laughs) that there has been a massive improvement into how aid is being distributed more effectively. I mean, we have had 20 plus years to perfect it, haven't we? quickly, before I move on to cite these next couple articles, I just want to touch base and make sure that we're all on the same page here. And that page being is that you guys know I'm not smart, right? Okay, because I know that I'm not smart. Like, I know that I don't know things and that I'm not a smart man. Like, I can totally admit that. But I do know that I kind of want you to feel as exacerbated as I do. So before I cherry-pick a few things from the One Data and Analysis, that's the ODA, I wanted to read a good portion of an article from FEE, which is the Foundation for Economic Education, the caveat here being that it is from 2001, and I am just sure that there has been massive improvement and how aid is being distributed. I mean, we have had 20-plus years to perfect it, no? Quickly, before I move on to cite the next couple articles, I just want to touch base to make sure that we are all on the same page. And that page being that you know I'm not smart, right? Okay, because like I know I'm not smart and I know that I don't know things and that I'm not a smart man. Okay, I can totally admit that, but I do know that I kind of want you to feel as exacerbated as I do. So, before I cherry pick a couple of things from one data and analysis, that's the ODA. I wanted to read a good portion of an article from FEE, which is the Foundation for Economic Education. The caveat here being that it is from 2001, and I am just, I'm like so sure that there has just been like a massive improvement in how aid is being distributed, no? I mean, we've had 20-plus years to perfect it, haven't we? (laughs) Sob, sob, sob. So the article is titled, The Sorry Record of Foreign Aid in Africa, subtitle being, African governments are destroying their countries with aid from the West, For almost half a century, the countries of Africa have been awash in aid. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been given to African governments. More billions were lent to these same governments. Countless tons of food have inundated the continent, and swarms of consultants, experts, and administrators have descended to solve Africa's problems. Yet the state of development in Africa is no better today than it was when this all started. Per capita income for most of Africa is either stagnant or declining. Just a few years ago, a World Bank report admitted that 75% of their African agricultural projects were failures. Other aid agencies weren't any luckier. Operation Mills, Mopti, and Mali was supposed to increase grain production, but the government imposed, quote, official prices on the grain and had to force farmers into selling their crops at these below market rates. As a result, grain production fell by 80%. In Senegal, four million was spent to increase cattle production in the Bakel region, but in the end, only 882 additional cattle were being reared there. In Northern Kenya, Norwegian aid agencies built a fish freezing plant to help employ the Turkana people. But after completion, it was discovered that the plant required more power than was available in the entire region. In another aid fiasco, $10 million was spent in Tanzania to build a cashew processing plant. The plant had a capacity three times greater than the country's entire cashew production, and the costs were so high that it was cheaper to process the cashews in India instead. In South Africa, over $2 million donated by the European Union was used to stage an AIDS awareness play, Serafina 2. While the funds provided a luxury bus for cast and crew, they did little to educate the public about AIDS. AIDS experts condemned the play as a waste of money. It consumed 20% of South Africa's entire AIDS budget and said it contained inaccurate information as well. A heavily promoted showing of the play in Soatu, sorry, was attended by fewer than 100 people. The play was pulled out, but the funds were never recouped. The EU insists that none of its funds were used on the project, but then Minister of Health, Zuma, disputes that. Debacles such as these are almost benign, and debacles of mispronouncing words In this article are entirely mine, and I apologize in advance, cause I'm just a dumb American and I can't pronounce stuff, it's too hard. But foreign aid is also being used in patently destructive and sometimes genocidal ways. The Marxist dictatorship of Ethiopia's Miramam was a major recipient of donor funds, a portion of which was used to forcibly resettle large segments of the population. One Ethiopian official said, It is our duty to move the peasants if they are too stupid to move by themselves. Donor funds earmarked for famine relief were instead used to buy trucks for the resettlement scheme. Relief aid was also intentionally kept away from some of the most severely affected areas because it suited the regime to starve its opponents. Relief ships were held for ransom and charged $50.50 per ton for permission to unload their aid, some of which was confiscated to feed the army. The New York Times reported that aid officials believed that this regime sold some of the food aid on the world market to finance the purchase of arms. But Ethiopia is not the exception. The Congo also sold donated food supplies and used the funds to purchase an arms factory from Italy. The more peaceful Miriam regime took donated rice, which it insisted be of high quality, and diverted it to tourist hotels. Donated money is just as likely to go astray. President Mubatu of Zaire managed to build a fortune in his Swiss bank account that was estimated as high as $10 billion. Kenyan human rights activist Makuwa Muta lamented, since independence in Africa, government has been seen as a." personal fiefdom a leader uses to accumulate wealth for himself, his family, his clan. He cannot be subjected to criticism by anyone, and everything he says is final. Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe is notorious for his extravagant shopping trips to Harrods, even if he has to confiscate planes from the national airlines to take them. Mugabe's regime has used systemic violence in attempts to stay in power, and according to the Johannesburg store, his thugs have looted aid to help finance their attacks. Some $1 million is supposedly at stake. Askar Peelgaard, the EU delegation head in Zimbabwe, has demanded an investigation, saying, we cannot accept that the humanitarian aid financed by European taxpayers is not arriving to the people for whom it was originally intended. And while hungry faces are used on posters and in media reports to sell the virtues of foreign aid, it is the hungry who rarely see any of the funds. Poverty may be used to justify the programs, but the aid is almost always given in the form of government-to-government transfers. And once the aid is in the hands of the state, it is used for purposes conducive to the ruling regime's own purposes. Since moving to black-majority rule in 1980, Zimbabwe has regularly received financial aid to promote land reform. For 20 years, the government used these funds to buy up land, which then reformed, typically, ended up in the hands of the ruling party's elite. Land that was actually redistributed was turned into communal farms and given to peasants who didn't have the know-how to run them. Many of the farms were pillaged for any saleable items and then deserted about one fourth of the communal farms are so unproductive that they require food aid just to prevent the farmers themselves from starving. European support Marxist autocratic regimes were often heavily financed by European governments especially when these governments were in the hands of left-of-center parties. Italian journalist Wolfgang Achter reported that the Italian Socialist Party gave heavy financial backing to Somalia's Marxist government of warlord Syed Barre, who used the funds to obtain arms and military advisors. Journalist Michael Marin reports that for 10 years before the 1992 famine, Somalia was the largest recipient of aid in the sub-Saharan Africa, but that most of the funds were lost in the corrupt maze of the Somali government nepotistic bureaucracy. Italy alone sent over $1 billion to fund projects in Somalia from 1981 to 1990, even though the regime was murdering its opponents. No wonder the new African yearbook called Somalia the graveyard of aid. The New York Times reported that when President Julius Nyerere of Tanzania announced a radical Marxist program, Many Western aid donors, particularly in Scandinavia, gave enthusiastic backing to the socialist experiment, pouring an estimated $10 billion into Tanzania over 20 years. Swedish economist Sven Reidenfeldt wrote, A decade of socialist agricultural policy had been sufficient to destroy the socio-ecological system. The World Bank says that from 1965 to 1988, the Tanzanian economy shrank on average 0.5% each year and that personal consumption dropped by 43%. The Marxist regime of Samora Machel in Mozambique similarly destroyed that country's agricultural output through price controls, but that was just one African nation among many that used this policy, all with the same disastrous results. President D. Gail Johnson, in testimony before a U.S. House subcommittee, said that during the 1950s and 60s per capita, African food production remained relatively constant, but dropped dramatically beginning in the 1970s. The decline in per capita food production was not due to a lack of resources, said Johnson, but to many factors that were primarily political in nature. Most of the problems that African nations face today are self-inflicted. Africa is the last major bastion of heavily regulated markets. This has led to stagnancy and decline. The continent itself is rich in resources, but the incentive to produce has been destroyed by government policies. The West is quite aware of this, but is too timid to do very much about it, and the aid bureaucracy keeps on delivering funds no matter how bad things get. Meg and Istu continued to receive aid while intentionally starving thousands and thousands of citizens to death. Mugabe slaughtered thousands of opponents in a region of Zimbabwe, but aid continued unabated. Even when General Sani Abiachi's military regime in Nigeria, in the face of world opinion, executed human rights activist Ken Saro Wiwa, virtually nothing happened. Various Western governments protested by withdrawing their diplomats, but within a few months, they were all back in place. The World Bank has admitted that almost all loans are fully disbursed to recipient nations, even if policy conditions are not met. In a 1986 report, it said that there was no evidence to show significant movement toward freer markets due to aid donations or policy restrictions. Various critics have repeatedly pointed out that foreign aid not only doesn't encourage reform but often stifles it. Development economist Peter Bauer has said that there is an inherent bias of government to government aid toward state control and politicization. Foreign aid, he argues, has contributed substantially to the politicalization of life in the third world. It augments the resources of government compared to the private sector, and the criteria of allocation tend to favor government trying to establish state controls. Pre-colonial period. Prior to colonialization, Africa had no such thing as the nation-state. It was a collection of hundreds and hundreds of distinct tribal cultures, many of which had long histories of antagonism toward one another. The European colonies merged these diverse tribes into the modern nation-state, which, as long as the central government was controlled by neutral Europeans, kept the conflicts to a minimum. But when European intellectuals abandoned colonialist theories for a Marxist-Leninist theory of imperialism, the Europeans pulled out almost overnight. What they left behind was a series of artificial nation nation states, which now exacerbated age-old tribal conflicts as each group attempted to grab the reins of power before their enemies could. Meanwhile, Europe decided to play the role of financial benefactor and poured aid into Africa. With aid as the primary source of economic power, the role of the state was increased relative to civil society and private industry. All this funding made status solutions to problems all the more appealing since they could be financed with further grants. Bauer has noted that one result of that process was that the best and brightest in African countries were drawn to the state like moths to the flame instead of into private development. Even when aid does reach the consumer, it often comes at a high price for local producers. It is typically forgotten that most of the recipient countries have local industries and farms that often cannot survive the influx of free goods. The late economist David Osterfield argued, aid has in many places actually destroyed the possibility for sustained economic growth by driving local producers, especially farmers, out of business. Somali- Rashmad made the same point regarding medical aid, look into drug donations and how they destroyed our developing health system. We once had so many pharmacies here. Pharmacists knew their jobs. Now there are people handing out drugs who are not trained because of the donated drugs from the international community that are so cheap. A priest in Tanzania reported that farmers in his region simply stopped producing food because of the availability of free donated food. Osterfield pointed out that a study of the UN World Food Program's response to 84 emergencies showed that it took an average of 196 days to respond, and that the European economic community took an average of 400 days. Osterfield quotes agricultural expert Dennis Avery as saying that aid was too late to relieve hunger, but in time to depress prices for local farmers who tried their best to respond double standard. While foreign aid may be, on the whole, destructive to Africa, that does not mean that the West is powerless to help impoverished Africans. But before it can accomplish any good in the region, it will have to abandon its double standard. Westerners are terrified of criticizing a Black-ruled country, lest they be called a racist. Gahanian economist George Ayate complained white rulers in South Africa could be condemned, but not black African leaders guilty of the same political crimes. Only when African governments are treated on the same moral basis as all other governments will reform and the development be possible. Some have called for the forgiveness of African debts. This would not be a bad thing, but it is quite useless if debt forgiveness is followed by more loans and aid as demanded by many African governments. It has probably reached the stage where debt repayment is impossible. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. The economies in most African countries cannot produce enough to pay the debts and never will as long as the same disastrous economic policies are continued. Neither should the West be taken in by South Africa President mbeke and his MAP, that's the Millennial Africa Recovery Programme. He speaks of development and trade, not aid, but then makes clear that he actually expects the West to continue pumping billions in aid into Africa. He wants this aid to come officially without conditions. Considering how conditional aid has been spent in the past, the idea of unconditional aid in the future is actually frightening. His plan also calls for the money to be spent regionally and not nationally. He clearly sees himself as the primary conduit through which aid will flow. For some time, the African National Congress government in South Africa has been looking to create what appears to be an African homogeny controlled by South Africa. The invasion of Lesotho recently by South Africa was one indication of that desire. And Mabiki has spent billions to purchase massive amounts of sophisticated weaponry for the express purpose of intervening in the rest of Africa. He told the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, that MAP aid would be used to strengthen the capacity of African states that he believes are too weak. Instead, he envisions a continent wide system of centralized planning run by strong national governments. He promises that Africa will rein in the dictators, yet, he himself gave tacit support to the violence engineered by Mugabe's regime in Zimbabwe. His objective is the last thing Africa needs, and this plan is another reason to end Western aid and loans. What would be far more beneficial to African development would be the lowering of trade barriers, but African farmers will never be able to compete in the world market as long as Europe, for instance, continues to shower subsidies on their own spoiled farmers. Various protectionist groups in the United States, like the trade unions, are pushing for international treaties that include costly environmental and labor provisions for developing countries. While they cry crocodile tears about the environment and the state of working conditions for the poor of the third world, they actually seem to be trying to limit competition from those same people. The net result will be a loss of jobs in poor countries in favor of the highly paid, unionized labor in the rich nations. The inescapable fact is that African governments are destroying their own economies, often with aid from the West. And these same governments simply refuse to listen to advice given by non-Africans. Aid will continue to be misspent and good advice will continue to be ignored until the African leaders learn on their own what results come from their interventions. The only option for the West is one of benign neglect. Bring the consultants, experts, and advisors home and end the aid and the loans. Trade barriers should be dismantled and African business permitted to compete as it can. One good business contract is worth more to Africa than a thousand consultants and one new factory has more value than a $100 million of aid. In the end, Africa will have to solve its own problems. When I was doing my research, and by research, I mean Googling, I came across the official development assistance, and that says, Official development assistance, or global aid, is a transfer of money and resources from predominantly richer countries to developing countries to help fight poverty and support economic development. And this website's cool because you can jump around and explore a bunch of stuff. I highly recommend it. In 2022, aid totaled $204 billion, a 13.6 increase from the previous year. In 2021, 20.7% of aid went to low income countries, 27% to lower middle income, 11.7% to upper middle income, and 0.1% to high income countries. And health sectors received 18.3% of the aid. That's $34.9 billion. Humanitarian was 13.9% of aid or $26.5 billion in 2021. Now, how much do countries give in aid? In the last 60 years, total aid has grown more than fourfold, from $38 billion in 1960, for the love of fuck, to $204 billion in 2022. But the financing needs to solve these global problems are much greater to achieve the sustainable development goals in low-income and lower-middle-income countries, that will likely cost between $1.4 and $3 per year. And then it goes on to say that aid has increased significantly in recent years, but is far from meeting needs. Isn't that shocking? And then it says that recently aid for COVID and refugees accounts for most of the increases in aid spending. Most donors are far from giving the 0.7% of national income as aid. In 1970, most countries agreed on a United Nations target of giving 0.7% of national income in aid, as recently as 2005, and again in 2015, European Union countries recommitted to this target. However, very few countries have achieved 0.7% since that time, and even fewer have maintained it. If all of these countries would just reach into their pockets and give 0.7%, there would be an additional $189 billion in additional aid available. Ugh! Ugh! If only we could just do that! Where does aid go? Aid is given by rich countries directly to countries in need. Or it can be given to a multilateral institution such as the World Bank or the UN, which passes on aid to countries and projects. African countries receive the largest share of the total aid, 33.6%, which was shockingly a lot like the numbers that we said earlier that the United States alone gives. Though this is down. From 38% a decade ago. And then it goes on to say that Africa receives the largest share of global aid. And then we've got by countries. And then what is it spent on? Global aid supports a wide range of projects across sectors from helping people living in poverty meet basic needs, such as humanitarian aid, health, and emergency food aid, to helping countries develop and grow their economies, such as aid to education, infrastructure, and energy. Remember in the the article the guy was talking about debt? So... Let's talk about it for a second. Debt is an important source of financing for development, but it needs to be sustainable. African debt has been growing significantly over the past decade. 21 countries in Africa are in or at risk of debt distress. That's 58% of assessed countries. African countries owe $644.9 billion to external creditors as of 2021. African countries will pay $68.9 billion in debt service in 2023. Debt owed by African countries is equivalent to 24% of their combined GDP in 2021. Africa's debt is at its highest level in over a decade. This is my favorite part. As a result of COVID-19, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and soaring inflation, African countries have had to take on even more debt and now 21 countries are either bankrupt or at high risk of debt distress. Africa's debt as a percentage of GDP has been rising quickly since 2014 and is 24% of African countries' GDP. Yet many individual countries have rates far higher. Who owns... African debt. The composition of African debt has changed significantly. Previously, the majority of African debt was owed to official creditors, high-income countries, and multilateral lenders like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Now, China and private creditors make up a large proportion of debt stocks, meaning more debt is non-concessional. China has become Africa's largest bilateral lender, holding over 73 billion of Africa's debt in 2020, and almost 9 billion of private debt. And if I'm not mistaken, if my tenfold hat is on right, I thought that we borrowed money from China as well. So I feel like are we borrowing money from China to give to Africa? Are we? I don't know. I don't know. I'm like quasi catatonic at this point. I'm smoking a cigarette and I'm just thinking of like the billions and billions of dollars that will probably never be accounted for. And shit that's going on that will probably have very little impact. I mean, you you fucking heard that, right? They... Money is supposed to go to, like, the energy sector, economic development, whatever, right? So they build a fucking plant, okay? But nobody had the forethought to think if we could even turn the fucking lights on. But yet money is going to infrastructure, but not to electricity, which I thought would be, like, infrastructure. I mean, it boggles my mind, I have a good idea. I think we should take a little break, and when we come back, let's get into Global Citizen. And we are back. Thank you so much, everybody, for sticking around. You have no idea how much I appreciate you, especially when I make, like, a long podcast, which this is going to be, because you know I don't like those. I always feel like you all probably have about the same attention span as I do which is about like around 35 minutes I'm fucking done whatever I'm just saying if you bail I get it so are you ready to join the movement changing the world are you no 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 that's not what I was gonna say Ah, oh, god help me what is a seamless podcast guys Hmm. what do they sound like do they sound good You know what? Don't fucking tell me, okay? Let's just keep going. Are you ready to be a global citizen? What does global citizen do exactly? Well, we take action to defeat poverty. Let's click on that and see what that means. Well, over 700 million people live in extreme poverty. With collective action, we can change this. 1,570,614 global citizens are currently taking action on this issue. So, (laughs) I mean, any day now. So let's learn more. Communities in Africa, Asia, and South America are most affected. And COVID is pushing millions back into poverty. Access to good health care, consistent education and nutritious food and clean water are keys to ending poverty. I would have also put in jobs, but that's just me. I'm not a global citizen, so I, I don't really know. Maybe that's not necessary. Now, in one of the papers that I was reading from earlier, it lists the greatest amount of humanitarian aid, and that does, in fact, go to health care at around $389 million, if memory serves me right. And what are they using that money for? Why, HIV and AIDS. After all these years. HIV and AIDS, I'm fucking inundiated with PrEP commercials. But apparently, we are still battling HIV and AIDS. I mean, I am just fucking flabbergasted by it, frankly. And also, vaccines. Yes, vaccines. Many, many, many vaccines. And... Yes, they talked about nutritious food. Well guess what? That's at the lowest end of the age, at about a hundred, hundred and one million. And also, I don't know how old everyone is. Actually, I do know how old you guys are because I it like gives me stats and stuff if I wanna if I'm curious. But let's pretend. Let's pretend that I don't know how old everyone is. But I can pretty much guarantee you that if you're over the age of forty and probably thirty, but I'm just gonna say forty. This is the exact same spiel you've been told your whole fucking lifetime, minus the ridiculous COVID narrative. They also demand equity. And I'm not even going to click on that shit because I am immediately turned off by both of those words and even more so when they're together. Um, And I'll let you know something uh, else as you traverse this website. Demand equity appears at the top of most of these pages. So again, with these words, collective actions, demand equity. They also defend the planet. Okay. They take actions across the globe. This organization connects global citizens and artists to call upon world leaders, corporate leaders, and philanthropists to do their part. But who are they, right? Let's find out. We envision a world free from extreme poverty now. We are an action platform, you know, like where you activate things, you can kind of activate, you're activating, dedicated to achieving the end of extreme poverty, powered by a community of Millions of global citizens who believe in one world, one people, where everyone has a chance to thrive. This is our world, and the actions of one can have a profound impact on many. That's why we rally around the critical issues of climate change, poverty, and inequality. This is our generation's moment. It's in our hands. What are global citizens? Global citizens are action takers and impact makers. Our mission is to end extreme poverty worldwide now. Our voices inspire action to defend the planet, defeat poverty, and demand equity. We post, tweet, message, vote, sign, and call to influence leaders and citizens to act. The collective actions of our community can make a difference to end extreme poverty now. We envision a world free from extreme poverty now. We are an action platform, activating activisms, dedicated to achieving the end of extreme poverty, powered by a community of millions of global citizens who believe in one world, one people, where everyone has an equal chance to thrive. This is our world, and the actions of one can have a profound impact on many. That's why we rally around the critical issues of climate change, poverty, and inequality, This is our generation's moment. It's in our hands. What are global citizens? Global citizens are action takers and impact makers. Our mission is to end extreme poverty worldwide now. Our voices inspire action to defend the planet, defeat poverty, and demand equity. We post, tweet, message, vote, sign, and call to influence leaders and citizens to act. Collective actions of our community can make a difference to end extreme poverty now. So we can join the movement, we can support the mission. And Global Citizen is headquartered in New York with offices in Canada, South Africa, Nigeria, Australia, Germany, and the United Kingdom. The organization was co-founded by Hugh Evans, Simon Moss, and Wee Sue in 2008. The Global Citizen platform was co-founded with Ryan Gall and Riot House in 2012. You can also find out more about the structure, governance, and how you can get involved on the website. I highly recommend you don't go there. So I poked around a bit with like the governance and structure and all that, but I didn't want to get like too bogged down in the minutiae of all those reports. So what I did was I looked up a couple things. And last year, Global Citizen uh, raised $2.4 billion. In 2021, they raised $1.1 billion. And on their website, what they say is that, million total actions have been taken. Now, I don't exactly know exactly what those actions are. Now, I'm assuming that the majority of them are like tweets or signing petitions, uh, things like that. Uh, It also reads 1.29 billion lives have been impacted to date and that a total of 43.6 billion dollars in funds just from Global Citizen have been distributed. That's a lot of scratch, man. You know what I'm saying? So then I looked in like their reports for, you know, whatever, like how much money do they have? And in their net assets, they're looking at about 16 million or so in net assets um and then when you add their liabilities and their net assets together this is 2021 information ps by the way uh i think they're at about 27 million dollars so what's that all mean i don't know i'm just a girl i don't know nothing about no numbers or anything like that but i was really curious as to who their core partners are because what is a charity without core partners? And I got to tell you, it was not surprising at all. Guys, it's just these typical grassroots companies. You probably haven't heard of any of them. And also just, it's embarrassing, okay? But I'm going to just include their uh, poultry approximate net worths. I mean, it's... Ugh! I. Anyway, you probably never heard of Procter and Gamble, at three hundred and thirty-six billion, or Cisco at two hundred and seven billion, Verizon, one hundred and sixty-four billion. Never heard of them. Delta Airlines, twenty-one billion. Live Nation, sixteen billion. Accenture, one hundred and sixty-nine billion. Citibank, three hundred twenty-seven billion. I mean, like Google only has $1,332 billion. I mean, that's Harris General at $300 billion. Worldwide Technology, which is heavily into ESG, is at $58 billion. Forbes, what? $630 billion. Uh, NYC Parks is included in there, but I didn't even bother looking them up because we know why they're in there, okay? They're in there for the festivals. American Eagle, $2.62 iHeart Radio, half a bill. Okay, <laughs> that's under my mattress. I mean, jeez, do better. And the Thomas Rodgers Foundation at $61 billion. Um, so as you can see, uh, none of these companies have any money that if they even took that shitty... that uh, governments are supposed to pay and put that towards hiring some of the best minds in the world, um, I guess that would be like asking too much because it's far better for all these companies that have all these billions of dollars. P.S. By the way, it's so much fucking money that, of course, I had to look up how many billions were in a trillion and I think it's like a thousand billions are in a trillion well anyway the point is is that I didn't even fucking add all these bitches up because I knew the number was too big and it would blow my fucking mind but again it's all up to you guys okay it's all up to us as global citizens okay to solve this shit so what what does any of that shit mean I mean, really, because it's super important to note that Global Citizen isn't just, like, Global Citizen, okay? It's not just some hippie Australian dude trying to change the world. Absolutely not. Global Citizen is an arm of the octopus that is the UN... Who describes global citizenship as an umbrella term for social, political, environmental, and economic actions of globally minded individuals and communities on a worldwide scale? The term can refer to the belief that individuals are members of multiple diverse local and non local networks ra- rather than single actors affecting isolated societies. Promoting global citizenship and sustainable development will allow individuals to embrace their social responsibility to act for the benefit of all societies, not just their own. The concept of global citizenship is embedded in the Sustainable Development Goals. So it's the UN. It's the World Economic Forum. It's the goddamn Open Society Foundations. Okay. They're all embedded into GC Global Citizen So of course we're all still sitting here wondering so what what do they what do they fucking do Well they host summits okay and they throw concerts But let's go back to the summits real quick because there's actually one coming up on April 27th and 28th in New York City but anybody can go So Global Citizen now is back for a second year with a new agenda for urgent action The time has always been now to end extreme poverty and that's exactly what we're driving at towards this year's now summit co-chaired by international global citizen festival curator chris martin and global citizen ambassador hugh jackman the two-day event will bring together government leaders private sector executives grassroots activists cultural innovators philanthropic experts and leading journalists to set a global agenda for action on the most urgent issues facing humanity and the planet. Some of the names attending this year include Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, President of France, Emmanuel Macron, very popular fellow, Sabrina Elba, Jordan Fisher, Michael Gandolfini, Tamron Hall. Katie Holmes, Bridget Moynihan, Amanda Seals, Gary Vaynerchuk, and more. Global Citizen Now is an important opportunity for the voices of young people and global citizens everywhere to be heard by those in power and for all of us together to find solutions that will shape our world and future generations, said Global Citizen Ambassador Hugh Jackman. The world is at a critical crossroads, and it is imperative that we act now to save our planet, address the climate crisis, ease the burdens-crushing economies, and alleviate the suffering of the world's most vulnerable people, said Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados. I am thrilled to be part of Global Citizen Now, which is assembling global changemakers, listening to young people and grassroots activists, and driving an agenda of urgent action the world desperately needs. We are also excited to announce that this year, for the first time, global citizens from all around the world can add their voices to the conversation and contribute questions to be included at an event through the Global Citizen app and website or through WhatsApp. Here is a breakdown of everything you need to know about Global Citizen now and how you can raise your voice and get involved. So as you know, Global Citizen now brings together the brightest minds, influential decision makers, and the biggest names in pop culture to create a global agenda for urgent action. The summit is about more than talking about the world's biggest challenges. It is about taking action to solve them. Every Global Citizen Now session will feature definitive next steps for participants, attendees, and global citizens to take immediate action on urgent issues, including climate change, the global food crisis, gender equality, protecting activists, and defending civic space and more. This year's program will also feature major announcements on policy initiatives and intimate conversations with renowned artists, as well as corporate and world leaders taking place at the glass house in new york city global action now global citizen now sorry is supported by global partners accenture cisco city delta Harris general partners PG, verizon and associate partners authentic brands group and impossible foods what's the program look like you ask i'll tell you once again this year's summit is bringing together some of the world's biggest decision makers innovative thinkers, and brightest minds to spotlight urgent issues and work towards solving them. Showcasing the power of cross-sector participation to make progress on the systemic challenges our world is facing, Global Citizen Now will feature a diverse program of sessions and speakers, including Power Our Planet, Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados, Vanessa Nagate, Ugandan Chief Climate Activist, UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador and author of A Bigger Picture, Ursula Leyen. President of the European Commission, and Dr. Shaw, President of the Rockefeller Foundation. How Ideas Become Impact, Sabrina Elba, the United Nations IFAD Goodwill Ambassador, Hugh Jackman, Global Citizen Ambassador, Hugh Evans, Co-Founder and CEO, Global Citizen, New York Attorney General Letitia Jameson. conversation with two-time Emmy Award-winning journalist and author Tamron Hall, and The Good Life with... Portia Blunt, Vice President of Global Apparel Reebok, Ebro Darden, Global Editorial Head of Hip Hop and R&B Apple Music, and host of Hot 97. Nicola Point Jameson, CEO Evil Geniuses. Jordan Fisher, producer, actor, gamer. Gary Vanderchuk, Chairman Vander X and CEO Vander Media. Further programming details will be announced over the coming days and weeks. Yay! So we've got so many people on here. We've got uh, Michael Gandafini, Phoebe Gates, women's health and reproductive rights activists. We've got some fashion designers, Katie Holmes, as I said. Uh, We've got the EVP and chief people policy and purpose officer from Cisco. We've got the president of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, the former prime minister of Sweden, president of France. We've got the Founder and Chairman of Harith General Partners. We've got Mark Moloch Brown, President of the Open Society Foundation. Of course, Chris Martin. Peter McGinnis, President and CEO of Impossible Foods. Catherine McKenna, Chair of the UN High-Level Expert Group on Net Zero. Yes, so as we can see, it's just the finest of the finest that you want making everybody's decision. Okay, so you heard me mention Chris Martin, Hugh Jackman. So, let's just get into the celebrities that are involved with Global Citizen and we'll do their approximate net worth, And at the end, let's add it all up just for fun. So, we have Chris Martin coming in at 130 million, Beyoncé 500 million, Leo DiCaprio, I said it like that on purpose, 300 million, Hugh Jackman 180 million. Sean Mendes forty million, John Legend hundred million, Stevie Wonder two hundred million, and I I gotta give it up for Stevie because he has been involved in humanitarian aid grift for so long, and I applaud him. I applaud him. No hate, I promise. Adam Lambert thirty five million, Oprah two point five billion, Usher hundred eighty million, Nicki Minaj hundred thirty million, Rihanna one point four billion, Rita Ora thirty million, and can I just say, how the fuck does Rita Ora have $30 million? Okay, I don't understand. The only thing I ever fucking see is her wearing hardly any clothes, just pictures of her scantily clad. And she's got $30 million, as if it's fucking impressive. Again, no hate. Naomi Campbell, $80 million. Jennifer Hudson, $30 million. Forrest Whitaker, $25 million. Janelle Monae, $12 million. Stephen Colbert, this makes me sick to even say, $75 million. Uh, Melinda Gates six point four billion, Jay Z two point five billion, Rocco DiSpirito five million, Annie Lennox sixty million, Shania Twain four hundred million, Charlie Puth, Puth, I, I don't know whatever twenty five million, Mariah Carey three hundred and forty million, Cardi B eighty million, Salma Hayek, two hundred million, Michelle Obama. 100 million. And if you add that all up, it is $16.38 billion of amazement, of clout, of climate change activists, of pop culture icons, philanthropists, the whole lot. Now, let's get into the bands. I just picked five, okay? So I did Blink 182. Whose net worth comes in around seventy million, BTS at one hundred and twenty million to one hundred and fifty million, the Chainsmokers at seventy million, Jonas Brothers at one hundred and fifty million, and Metallica, coming in solidly at one billion dollars. That's 1,410 million dollars worth of power right there. But what's important is is that you go to the concerts, that you pay for the tickets. Now, I looked it up and I couldn't get any information on what the 2023 lineup is. I do know that it's taking place in September and, of course, at Central Park. I'm willing to bet, though, because on their website they're having, like, things where you can purchase tickets and earn credits, you know, when you join the rewards program. It's all a a bag of bullshit. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. And they have... Uh, ones for Shania Twain and Katy Perry. So I'm imagining those are probably two of the people on the lineup. Maybe Mariah Carey again, Charlie Puth. I don't know. Who knows? They don't have the thing out. You would think they would have it out soon considering we're in practically May and the concerts in September, but what, what do I know? I don't know anything. Isn't that sweet? Since we just heard how precious Global Citizen is, let's take a look at some articles written about Global Citizen, and we'll start in 2015 with an article titled, You Can't Fight Poverty with a Concert. Global Citizen's Celebrity Pact Festival aims to mobilize millennials against poverty. That's pointless if it strips politics from the fight. The idea of world or global citizenship is an important one. At a time when so many of our most urgent challenges take a global form, it makes sense that the notion of citizenship should expand beyond narrow national interests and that people across the world should experience a sense of responsibility to those outside their local or regional communities. One of the most prominent uses of this idea currently is Global Citizen, an advocacy website, and annual music festival. On September 26, Manhattan Central Park will be packed with tens of thousands of enthusiastic young people eager to see artists such as Beyonce and just as keen to express solidarity with the world's poor. Sadly, the admirable social consciousness Global Citizen taps into looks like it's going to waste. The campaign offers a hopelessly depoliticized picture of poverty, which is always a political problem above all and fails to make serious demands of key institutions. From the perspective of the world's poor, the Global Citizen Festival looks less like a strategic intervention on their behalf and more like a demonstration of young American support for a doomed agenda for global development, one that serves the interests of the rich and powerful first and foremost. As young people concerned about these issues, we urge Global Citizen to do better. Global Citizens' campaign is founded on holding governments accountable through Twitter and email blasts from its members for fulfilling commitments they've already made to work towards achieving the UN's new Global Goals for Sustainable Development. The Global Goals, which will be adopted by UN member nations at the UN Sustainable Development Summit this weekend, are the follow-up to the Millennium Development Goals, which were announced in 2000 and expire this year. They represent agreement on principles that are supposed to guide development policy around the world for the next 15 years. The global goals seem ambitious at first. The list of 17 lofty global goals and 169 sub-targets include IN POVERTY IN ALL ITS FORMS EVERYWHERE. End Hunger, Achieve Food Security and Improve Nutrition and Promote Sustainable Agriculture and Achieve Gender Equality and Empower All Women and Girls, All by the Year 2030. According to GlobalCitizen.org, the festival's purpose is to serve as a critical lever for achieving policy and financial commitments that will shape the success of the global goals over the next 15 years the key questions are these. How do those in extreme poverty get to be so poor? What continues to impoverish them? Ending world poverty in 15 years might sound impossible. I mean, they only have five years left. Fingers crossed. That's because it is, at least without a massive reordering of our world economy, which demands precisely the kind of political discussion global citizen avoids. Critics of the Global Goals have called him a high school wish list for how to save the world, worse than useless, and a betrayal of the world's poorest people. A study done by economist David Woodward shows that poverty eradication is impossible under our current global economic system. Even under the most ideal conditions, it would take 100 years to bring the world's poorest above the Global Goals poverty line of $1.25 a day. And this amount of growth in a carbon constrained world would have devastating environmental consequences. The key questions are these. How did those in extreme poverty get to be so poor? How were they impoverished? And what is it that continues to impoverish them? A discussion about poverty that avoids these questions is dishonest and unhelpful. It creates a similar paradox to the one Gary Young has described in liberal discussions of racial inequity. We have racism, writes Young, but no racist. What we get from the global goals in Global Citizen is a similar idea with regards to poverty, a consequence that nobody caused, a system that nobody operates, creating victims without perpetrators. Global Citizen does do important work in raising awareness of poverty and mobilizing an enormous amount of people. But because of its partnerships, sponsors, and associations, the UN, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, Citibank, Google, Unilever, and the special interests inherent in those associations, Global Citizen risks providing cover for politicians and companies rather than holding them accountable to young people who care about poverty. Because, do you know that, like, old people don't give a shit about poverty? I mean. <laughs> <sighs> We don't hear global citizen advocating for redistribution of wealth and resources. That's always a good idea. We hear nothing about the urgent changes in tax and trade regulation that developing countries insist are essential to fighting poverty, nor reform of international financial institutions that continue to exploit developing countries. (laughs) Which is definitely not the World Bank or the IMF. Please, okay? You see, the World Bank's Jim Jong Kim and... IMF's Christine Lagarde feted at a glamorous global citizen event, but we hear nothing about the disastrous policies both institutions have imposed on developing countries, in particular the deeply harmful structural adjustment programs that have sacrificed crucial public institutions to the fetish of the free market the world bank and imf are universally despised across the developing world the great nigerian musician felakuti dumped them international motherfuckers and the moniker has stuck last time lagarde visited malway Malawi, sorry fuck the world's poorest country to promote the imf's austerity agenda Ordinary citizens took to the streets up and down the country to protest her visit, singing that she was unwelcome there, a famously hospitable country. For those who lived through the devastating assault of structural adjustment on the essential health and education services of the poorest countries, which, as we know, is where all the money goes, right? Remember, all the money goes to health. The notion of young Americans and world-famous musicians claiming to make common cause with the poor while applauding Kim and Lagarde on a Central Park stage must be astounding. Every generation since Truman has failed the world's poor. We, in 2015, look like we'll do so again. (laughs) And you did. Simply advocating that rich governments stick to commitments they've already made is not good enough. An important, though not very sexy, place to begin a more effective campaign would be the issue of taxation and its regulation. In July, the UN held the third international conference on financing for development in Addis Ababa, I'm sorry, Ethiopia, to determine how the global goals will be paid for the cost is estimated at between 2 and 3 trillion dollars a year for 15 years among the topics discussed was demand from the group of 77 countries that the organization for economic cooperation and development made up of the world's richest countries surrender regulatory powers to a proposed intergovernmental tax body within the UN <laughs> great idea Doing so, it would make certain that developing countries have a say in matters of international taxation and ensure that more money earned in developing countries by multinational corporations stays there. But the United States and the European Union blocked the proposal, insisting that the governance of tax cooperation take place exclusively under the control of the OECD. According to Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, companies like Google – a sponsor of the Global Citizen Festival, have demonstrated a genius for avoiding taxes that exceeds what they've employed in creating innovative products. While tax evasion like this does not have as big of an effect on rich countries, developing countries feel its effects. Not taking power away from the OECD allows for these kinds of injustices to continue unfettered. Global Citizen also ignores both the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership which could negatively affect economies in developing countries that rely on exports and provoke damaging environmental effects through factors such as aviation greenhouse gas emissions, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will prevent the industrialization of participating countries by locking them into low-end agricultural and extractive industries. Critics have called the TTIP and TTP, thinly veiled attempts to carve out China, Brazil, India, and other emerging economies from WTO talks. Global governance for these types of issues needs to be split equally among the world's countries, and this should be an issue that, quote, global citizens are vocal about. The global goals are no cozy consensus. They will be announced at a moment of deep division in international diplomacy, with G77 countries dismayed by the prospect of international tax reform was summarily dismissed by rich countries, which, by the way, are providing most of the aid. Whoo. When revelers at the Global Citizen Festival gather to celebrate the global goals, they will be cheering for a framework for combating poverty that poor countries regard as favoring the interests of the richest nations over the urgent need of the world's poorest. So whose side is Global Citizen on? Google is not only the festival's only sponsor that continues to have negative effects on the lives of those developing countries, Unilever has been the target of protesting in India and won global viral video for its failure to clean up toxic mercury, which has resulted in the deaths of dozens of factory workers and numerous other health problems. Additionally, Global Citizens Online Store sells t-shirts commemorating the event made by companies like H&M, which has recently been cited in a report by Human Rights Watch for rights violations in its factories in Cambodia. In order to fund its event, Global Citizen is taking money from and thereby including in its message companies whose actions are counterproductive to the goals of Global Citizen and in doing so, indirectly providing cover for their transgressions. Advocates of the global goals argue that they will pick up from where the success of the MDGs left off. However, there's little evidence that the MDGs have been successful. A study done by UN statistician Howard Friedman which the UN declined to publish, showed no trend in statistically significant accelerations in the MDG indicators after 2000. Clearly, global citizens' energies and resources could be put to much greater use than simply endorsing a widely expensive action plan that will inevitably fail to meet its goals. A historical framework provides some perspective on how little has changed in the way people talk about development. Many consider the origin of this mission to be Harry Truman's 1949 inaugural address in which he introduced the Point Four Program, the first U.S. program for international development, Truman stated that for the first time in history, humanity possesses the knowledge and skill to relieve the suffering of these people in developing countries. While it is troubling to note that this line was included in Truman's address as a public relations gimmick thrown in by a professional speechwriter, it is even more striking that this line would persist for over 65 years when it comes to discussions of development. Global Citizens Pledge reads, I believe that 1 billion people living in extreme poverty is unfair and unjust. For the first time in history, we have the power to end this. Once again, the phrase acts like a PR gimmick, rallying its prospective members with the ideal that they can be a part of ending extreme poverty while demonstrating how top-down, depoliticized, Technocratic approaches to poverty have endured so long unchallenged. Every generation since Truman has failed the world's poor. In 2015, look looks like we'll do it again. We urge Global Citizen, let's do better. And you did fail. Boop. Let's move on to 2019. To an article titled, The Global Citizen Fraud. On September 24th, Donald Trump told the United Nations General Assembly that the future does not belong to the globalists. The future belongs to the patriots. Four days later, as if in a rebuke to his assertion, the Great Lawn in New York's Central Park remembers. New York parks are one of the partners, to a lesser extent, to Global Citizen was the site of the Global Citizen Festival. This event brought together top artists, world leaders, and everyday activists to take action, to activate actions, to activate actings, in the words of its website, and offered free tickets to global citizens who take a series of actions to create lasting change around the world. These actions included writing tweets and signing petitions affirming their dedication to changing the world. Featuring such entertainers as Alicia Keys and Hugh Jackman, the Global Citizen Festival was organized by a group called Global Citizen in partnership with firms such as Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, and Cisco Technologies. Rarely have so many heavyweight corporations described their activities in such benign language. Verizon stated on the event's website that we focus our business and resources to uplift people and protect the planet. Who knew? Covering the festival live, MSNBC hosts kept insisting between interviews with Democratic politicians and a recitation of DNC talking points that it was not about politics. Hurricane Sandy, Central American drought, and the fall of Venezuela, we were informed, were all caused by climate change. A Mexican official announced her country's new feminist foreign policy the head of some activist group, took credit for the decline in U.S. poverty. Politicians from Norway, Barbados, and elsewhere waived their globalist credentials, while America's withdrawal from the Paris Accords was cited as a sin against globalism and thus against humanity itself. At the heart of the whole event were the repeated reassurances by those on stage that everybody present was a global citizen and that this was something for which they deserved endless congratulations. Gesturing at the folks lolling around on the sunny great lawn, one reporter enthused over the magnificent commitment they were making. Representative Adriano Espiaut. Democrat, New York, calling the audience members a powerful image of global citizenship, was asked what exactly they could do to change the world. Glancing back at them lying on the grass, he enthused, they're doing it now. To quote one MSNBC talking head, tonight is about community, connection, and the world coming together welcome to the vapid but dangerous new world of global citizenship i was introduced to it a decade ago while taking a walk in amsterdam a rally was taking place on the dam the large cobbled square in front of the dutch royal palace as i approached some signs and banners came into view a person cannot be illegal read one there's no such thing as an illegal person read another they were in dutch with misspellings There were many other signs communicating the message that the term illegal alien should be replaced by undocumented aliens, and that people should be allowed to live wherever they wished. I knew some basic statistics. I knew how wonderful the Netherlands was, how small it was, and how crowded it was already with its population of 15 or so million. I also knew how many people were out there in the not-so-wonderful world beyond the West. India, Indonesia, Brazil, Pakistan, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, and the Philippines. Each of these countries had a population, a fast-growing one at that, in excess of 100 million, a large percentage of whom would doubtless be thrilled to relocate to this tiny kingdom. The pronouncement that a person cannot be illegal made no sense. What else could be said of a citizen from one country living unlawfully in another? Little did I realize that within a few years, such thinking would be mainstream. Little did I realize that in the view of many Americans, undocumented persons would not only deserve all the rights of American citizens, but would actually deserve special treatment in matters as significant as health care, schooling and housing, to which they would be considered entitled without being subject to any of the obligations actual citizens of the United States are required to perform. In the past decade, the very concept of citizenship has not only become passé, but j-classé. We should all be global citizens. It's not a new concept. The first person to call himself a citizen of the world was Dio. Genes, I'm sorry, the founder of cynicism. He lived in the fourth century BCE and has been cited in support of the idea. He made this pronouncement, however, only after being stripped of his citizenship in his native city and moving in disgrace to Athens. In ancient Greece, citizenship was deeply prized. It was inextricable from the idea of civilization. Never before had individuals been afforded the protection of an identity beyond that of family or tribe. The Romans borrowed it from the Greeks and made it something of absolute value. To be a Roman citizen conferred protection and prestige throughout the ancient world. Citizenship meant order. It meant, at a bare minimum, a degree of respect and rights and security that was without parallel in the world of the day. Ironically enough, the contemporary enthusiasm for global citizenship has its roots in the historical moment that marked the triumph of modern national identity and pride, namely the World War II victory of free countries plus the Soviet Union over their unfree enemies. Citizens of small conquered nations resisted oppression and in many cases gave their lives out of sheer patriotism and love of liberty. As Allied tanks rolled into one liberated town after another, people waved flags that had been hidden away during the occupation. Germany and Japan had sought to create empires that erased national borders and turned free citizens into subjects of tyranny. Brave patriots destroyed that dream and restored their homeland's sovereignty and freedom. And yet a major consequence of this victory was the establishment of an organization. The United Nations. Its founding rhetoric like that of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan was all about the erasure of borders, even as it hoisted its own baby blue flag alongside those of its members. On December tenth, nineteen 1948, the UN adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The rights it enumerates emanate from the DNA of modern Western nation states. They can be traced to Magna Carta and were articulated in the U.S. Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights. But the UN Declaration departs from its British and Amer- American antecedents in significant ways. While affirming freedom of speech and due process, noted E. Jeffrey Ludwig in an article posted at the American Thinker. It pointed the way towards intervention by the UN in the daily lives of people by, for example, asserting the right to food, clothing, medical care, social services, unemployment and disability benefits, child care and free education, plus more abstract rights such as the right to freely participate in the cultural life of the community and to enjoy the arts. The chief force behind the declaration was Eleanor Roosevelt, the chair of the U.N.'s Human Rights Commission. In a 1945 newspaper column, she had had some interesting things to say about patriotism and what we would now call globalism. Willy-nilly, she wrote, one of us cares more for his own country than for any other. That is a human nature. We love the bit of land where we have grown to maturity and known the wit, joys, and sorrows of life. The time has come, however, when we must recognize that our mutual devotion to our own land must never blind us to the good of all lands and of all people. Willy-nilly, bit of land? Didn't America deserve better than that from its longtime First Lady? Didn't America's armed forces who had fought valiantly for their own bit of land— One part of Mrs. Roosevelt's testimony was ambiguous. When she referred to the good of all lands and of all peoples, did she mean that Americans should care about what's best for other peoples, or was she saying that all lands and peoples are good? She couldn't possibly be saying that, could she? Hadn't the Holocaust just proven otherwise? It's striking to recognize that Mrs. Roosevelt wrote this only months after the bloody end of the crusade to restore freedom to Western Europe— And at a time when our erstwhile ally Joseph Stalin's actions in Eastern Europe were underscoring precisely how evil our fellow man could be and just how precious a gift to the world the United States was. Although the declaration passed in the General Assembly 48-0, eight nations, the USSR, Belarus, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Ukraine, Yugoslavia, South Africa, and Saudi Arabia abstained. This rendered the document essentially pointless, a statement of Western values that much of the Soviet bloc and one of the most powerful countries in the Arab world rejected. As other Muslim nations signed on, and their insincerity in doing so was later reflected in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation's 1990 Cairo Declaration on Human Rights and Islam, which defines human rights in a way that is founded entirely on Sharia law and is utterly at odds with Western values. Another would-be global citizen was Wendell Wilkie, who had challenged FDR for a presidency in 1940. In 1943, Wilkie published One World, an account of a round-the-world trip he had made and a plea for the nations of the world to accept a single international order. Wilkie wanted more than just a UN. He wanted world government based on the Atlantic Charter. It is said that his book was the biggest nonfiction bestseller in history up to that time, inspiring an international one-world movement to which both Albert Einstein and Mahatma Gandhi belonged. Like Eleanor Roosevelt, Wilkie was determined to build a new world founded on specifically American notions of rights and freedoms. Like Mrs. Roosevelt, too, he was convinced that post-war feelings of goodwill toward the U.S. by other governments would lead them to embrace these notions. On his world trip, wrote Wilkie, he had discovered that foreigners knew that America had no desire for conquest and that the U.S. therefore enjoyed their respect and trust, a respect and trust, he argued, that America must use to unify the peoples of the earth in the human quest for freedom and justice. Needless to say, the world didn't end up with Wilkie's One World, but it got the UN where, from the outset, there was more talks of peace than of freedom and where the difference between the West and the Soviet bloc were routinely glossed over in order to present the facade of international comedy. Behind the Iron Curtain, captive peoples weren't citizens, global or otherwise, but prisoners— Yet in the West, the UN's language of what we now call global citizenship started to take hold, and the UN began to be an object of widespread, though hardly universal, veneration. In reality, the UN may be a massive and inert bureaucratic kleptocracy yoked to a debating society Most of whose member states are unfree or partly free, but people in the free world who grow starry-eyed at the thought of global citizenship view it as a somehow magically exceeding, in moral terms, the sum of its parts. You can't discuss the U.N. in global citizenship without mentioning Maurice Strong. A very odd thing happened on the weekend, wrote Christopher Booker in The Telegraph in December 2015. The death was announced of a man who in the past 40 years has arguably been more influential on global politics than any other single individual, yet the world scarcely noticed. What Strong, an extremely rich Canadian businessman, did, almost single-handedly, was create, out of the blue, the global warming panic that is now a cornerstone of left-wing ideology. Although he was never Secretary General of the UN, Strong wielded massive power within that organization and in innumerable other international bodies, serving, for instance, as a director of the World Economic Forum and as a senior advisor to the president of the World bank. He also played pivotal roles in a long list of programs and commissions that were nominally dedicated to the environment, among them the UN Environmental Program and the World Resources Institute, the Earth Charter Commission, and the UN's World Commission on Environment and Development. But although he was nicknamed godfather of global warming, Strong didn't really care about climate. His real objective was to transform the UN into a world government, a permanent, unelected political bureau. Sorry composed of elders such as himself. At first, indeed, climate played no role in his plans. To fund the all-powerful UN of his dreams in 1995, he proposed a 0.5% tax on every financial transaction on earth, a scheme that would have netted $1.5 trillion annually, approximately the entire annual gross income of the United States at the time. When the Security Council vetoed this move, Strong tried to eliminate the Security Council. The failure of such stratagems led Strong to focus increasingly on climate. By promoting the idea that the planet was in existential peril, he was able to argue that a looming disaster on the scale he predicted could be solved only by vesting in the U.N. an unprecedented degree of authority over the lives of absolutely everyone on Earth." To this end, Strong concocted Agenda 21, formulated at the 1992 U.N. Earth Summit, or Rio, conference, of which he served as Secretary General. Agenda 21 proposed a transfer of power from nation-states to the U.N. It is simply not feasible for a sovereignty to be exercised unilaterally by individual nation-states, Strong explained, The global community must be assured of global environmental security. What kind of regime did Strong wish to establish? Suffice it to say that he disdained the U.S., but admired communist China, where he maintained a flat to which, incidentally, he relocated after being implicated in the U.N. oil for food scandal in 2005 another of the many financial scandals in which he was implicated but for which he repeatedly managed to get himself off the hook. It involved funneling massive sums to North Korea of whose regime he was also fond of. Strong was the spiritual leader of all of these global citizens who today fly thousands of miles in private jets to swanky conferences at which they give speeches chiding their inferiors for not recycling. One such, one such person is Al Gore, whose house is known to have one of the largest carbon footprints in Tennessee. Another is Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times columnist who promotes an initiative, Global Citizen Year, which seeks to engage young Americans in global issues. With his wife, Cheryl Don Kristof wrote the 2014 book, A Path Appears, described by its publishers as a Roadmap to becoming a conscientious global citizen, Christoph has argued that Americans should contribute to foreign rather than domestic causes because an aid group abroad can save more lives can save more lives more cheaply than an organization in the United States and generally can do more good with less money. Never mind the ample proof that foreign aid more often than not does more harm than good, encouraging dependency fostering resentment, crushing initiative, lining the pockets of dictators and their cronies, and preventing poor countries from developing healthy economies. After the UN came the European Union. As a free trade zone gradually morphed into a would-be superstate, the EU's supposed raison d'etre was that nationalism had almost destroyed Europe in World War II. But this was wrong. Europe had been torn apart because of two totalitarian ideologies, one based on racial identity and the other on a utopian universalist vision. Communism's end goal was indeed nothing more or less than a kind of global citizenship under which everyone except for a handful of elites would be equally controlled, spied on, and oppressed. The global citizenship mentality ramped up more with the 1960s. No one expressed it more memorably than John Lennon in Imagine, a 1971 song whose influence has been immeasurable. Imagine there is no countries, Lennon wrote, going on to imply that without countries, there would be nothing to kill or die for, so that all the people on earth would be living life in peace, and indeed the world would be as one. The song, which to this day remains a ubiquitous protest anthem, has led millions of starry-eyed idealists to equate nationhood with war and patriotism with killing, and to believe that a borderless planet would be a peaceful one. The song has also helped spread the view that simply imagining a perfect world is equivalent to or even better than doing the hard work of creating a better, if still imperfect world. Hence the inane comments at this year's Global Citizen Festival to the effect that the attendees, just by being there, were actually accomplishing something. The concept of global citizen now pervades our politics. During her 2016 campaign, Hillary Clinton envisioned a Western Hemisphere and ultimately a world without borders. Barack Obama, in reply to a question about American exceptionalism, said that, yes, he saw America as exceptional, but that people in other countries, too, saw their countries as exceptional. The last sentence of his Nobel Peace Prize citation contained the word global not once, but twice. The committee endorses Obama's appeal that now is the time for all of us to take our share of responsibility for a global response to global challenges. What U.S. president had ever been more global? A Kenyan father, an Indonesian boyhood. His best-selling autobiography conveyed his affection for both of those countries. It was the U.S. for which his feelings were ambivalent. The concept of global citizenship also dominates our popular culture. In a 2018 book, Hollywood Heyday, David Fantil and Tom Johnson write about attending a 1981 church service with film director Frank Capra, then 93. To honor the recently re- released Tehran hostages, the recessional hymn was America, my country, tis of thee. All four voices, sorry, all four verses, three of them obscure, all four verses, three of them obscure, were sung. Congregants were handed lyric sheets. Capra didn't give his sheet so much as a glance. He knew every word of every verse by heart and sang with emotion. What member of today's Hollywood elite could do that? More typical of the attitude of movie people nowadays was a remark made during an onstage interview at the 2016 Pin World Voices Festival by screenwriter Richard Price asked about American identity. He replied, I always feel like I live in the country of New York. The interviewer replied, whenever I'm traveling and people ask if I'm American, I say I'm a New Yorker. Price replied, I always say I'm Canadian because I don't know who I'm talking to. One of the conceits of America popular culture is the idea that the human race would come together in a trice, the ultimate pipe dream of global citizens, if confronted by a common enemy. In Independence Day, 1996, the world responds as one to an attack by space aliens, and the U.S. president gives a pep talk to American participants in the common defense. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world, and you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. Perhaps it's the fate that today is the 4th of July. Should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. In Independence Day, as it almost invariably the case in such films, international cooperation is premised on American values, just like the founding of the UN. Routinely, people call themselves global citizens without recognizing in the slightest the extent to which their sense of the global is rooted in uniquely American ways of thinking. Global citizenship is also big at America's most prestigious colleges. Global engagement is a featured category on the main page of the Brown University website. Type in dartmouth.edu and you'll find the category global alongside admissions, schools, centers, arts, and athletics. On the main page of Columbia University's site, global is right up there with libraries, arts, and athletics. On Duke's main page, the categories are admissions, academics, research, arts, schools and institutes, and yes, global. The same is true of the websites of any number of other major U.S. colleges. What do you get when you click on global on these sites? Well, at Columbia's site, you'll encounter a comment by its president, Lee C. Bollinger, We all need to be explorers again rediscovering what the world is like and what it means to think globally. Recall that Bollinger's own most prominent contributions to thinking globally were his speaking invitations in 2007 to Iran's Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and earlier this year to Mathatir Mohamed of Malaysia, both violent Jew-haters. Bollinger's bemusing rhetoric typifies the way in which these institutions discuss global citizenship. When I checked the Yale University website recently, front and center on its main page was the statement that Yale engages with people and institutions across the globe in the quest to promote cultural understanding, improve the human condition, delve deeper into the secrets of the universe, and train the next generation of world leaders. Oh. Is that all? The site quotes Yale partner Vincent Baruda, Rwanda's minister for the environment. Partnerships like the ones we have forged today are especially critical when addressing complex global challenges. The words complex and challenges get a real workout on these sites. The pitch for Columbia's MA in Global Thought calls it an interdisciplinary academic course of study that challenges students to explore new concepts and categories intended to encompass and explain the complexities of our interconnected and changing world. MA students will come to understand global thinking as a process rather than a product and be supported in their development of insights about the changing world. One course, Global Governance Regimes, explores the challenges of thinking about and effectuating governance in a global area. Globalization, you see, poses new challenges for thinking about the concept of governance. Meanwhile, on Dartmouth site, you can read an item entitled, How Can Students Be Good Global Citizens?, The Dartmouth campus, we learn features the Global Village, a residential community that holistically equips students to thrive as ethical, engaged, and responsible world citizens and scholars, and enables them to explore complex international issues and engage in focused reflection. Decades ago, American curricula included a subject called civics, Students learned about responsible citizenship, understanding how government worked, knowing one's constitutional rights, following current affairs, and voting intelligently in elections. Describing these courses was not problematic. Students weren't invited or challenged to figure out what citizenship means. They were told. They were given specifics. They experienced something known as education. Alas, those civics courses have long since disappeared. The contemplation of global citizenship has filled that vacuum. It's apparent purpose is to undo any sense of responsible citizenship that a young person might have acquired and to replace it with a higher loyalty. I begin this article by mentioning the Global Citizen Festival. One of the two co-founders is Hugh Evans, described on his Wikipedia page as an Australian humanitarian. He gave a TED talk in 2016 titled, What Does It Mean to Be a Citizen of the World? Evans praised this growing movement of global citizens who identify first as foremost, not as members of a state, a tribe, or a nation, but as a member of the human race, saying that the world's future depends on global citizens. Evans maintained that if we were all global citizens, we could solve every major problem in the world because those problems are all global issues and therefore only to be solved by global citizens. How did Evans become a global citizen? It happened, he recounts, during a brief stay in a Philippine slum where residents wore rags and slept on garbage heaps. Why, he wondered, was his life so much better than theirs? The answer he came up with was this. Their poverty was the result of colonialism. International economics, he concluded, is a zero-sum game. If some countries are rich, it's because they've exploited countries that are poor. Granted, this belief hasn't led Evans to give up his wealth, but he's certainly made a great show of guilt about it. It's Barely an exaggeration to say that he makes a career out of traveling from place to place, standing at lecterns, and expressing solidarity with people who sleep on rubbish heaps. Note, however, that you're not likely to hear those slum dwellers describing themselves as global citizens. They are tied by poverty to the places where they were born. One wonders, would any Brit who went through the Blitz ever have called himself a global citizen? Would any American whose father died in a Nazi POW camp ever have called themselves a global citizen? I doubt it. Global citizenship is a luxury of those who've reaped rewards earned by the blood of patriots. Global citizens pretend to possess possess, or sincerely think they possess a loyalty that transcends borders. It sounds pretty, but it's not. By the same token, to some ears, a straightforward declaration of patriotism can sound exclusionary, bigoted, racist. It isn't. To assert a national identity is to make a moral statement and to take on a responsibility. To call yourself a global citizen is to do the equivalent of wearing a peace button. You're making a meaningless statement because you think it makes you look virtuous. Think of love. To say that you care first and foremost about your own family doesn't mean that you hate other families. It's merely a question of being honest about something that, in the real world, entails commitment and sacrifice. In matters of loyalty, as in matters of love, there are hierarchies. To love everyone is to love no one. To say that you love all of humanity is a very pretty lie. As former British Prime Minister Theresa May said in 2016 in one of her rare deviations in dissents, if you believe you are a citizen of the world, you are a citizen of nowhere. To be American is to partake in the benefits that flow from American freedom, power, wealth, and world leadership. Very few Americans who call themselves global citizens ever actually back up their proclamation by relinquishing any of these benefits. That might be worthy of respect. No they gladly embrace the benefits of being an American, they're just too virtuous in their minds to embrace the label itself. They're like young people living off a generous trust fund while sporting an eat the rich button. One way of looking at the aftermath of 9-11 is to recognize that many Americans who were simply unable, for very long anyhow, to dedicate themselves to country were thrust by that jihadist assault into the arms of the only alternative they could imagine, namely global citizenship. Instead of being usefully dedicated to the liberty and security of their own country in a time of grave threat, they have bailed on America and have found in global citizenship a noble-sounding illusion of freedom from patriotic, patriotic obligation. And in fact, they are floating free. Hovering above the earthly struggle between good and evil and refusing to take sides. And moreover, presenting this hands-off attitude as a mark not of cowardice, but of cultural sophistication and moral support superiority. To a large extent, the project of a global citizenship is about trying to replace the concrete with the abstract, about exchanging the real for the idealistic. It's a matter of trying to talk Americans into rejecting the pragmatic and industrial patriotism that, yes, made America great, and pushing on them instead yet another pernicious utopian ideology of the sort of that almost destroyed Europe in the 20th century. It's a matter of endlessly talking up ideas for radical change on every level of society, from ecological measures that would bring down the world economy to a neurotic obsessiveness with hierarchies of group identities that threatens to destroy America's social fabric, instead of implementing practical reforms that enjoy popular support and would prove everyone's life. It's a matter of trying to persuade ordinary citizens in the name of some higher good, whether world peace or world health or protection of the planet's environment, to relinquish their freedom and obey a small technocratic elite. In the final analysis, global citizenship is a dangerous dream, a threat to individual liberty, and an assault on American sovereignty, a menace not only to Americans, but all of humanity, and one that should therefore be rejected unambiguously by all men and women of goodwill and at least a modicum of common sense. 2021 was a tough year for a global citizen when we were delighted to find two lovely articles about this company. The first one comes from June 2021 from page six where the Teneo CEO has allegedly been kicked off Global Citizen board after inappropriate drunken behavior. Declan Kelly, the CEO of the consulting firm for Fortune 500 execs, Tinio was kicked off the board of the charity Global Citizen after he got drunk and acted inappropriately with a number of women at their starry festival, sources tell page six. Kelly was kicked off the board of the anti-poverty campaigning group Global Citizen, the sources say, after he made a drunken scene at a VIP party on May 2nd, following the group's Vax Live concert, hosted by Selena Gomez and chaired by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, with performers including Jennifer Lopez, plus messages from Pope Francis and President Biden. One source told Page Six that Kelly was extremely drunk and acted inappropriately with as many as six women at the party in front of other guests. The Financial Times reported the inappropriate behavior included the non-consensual touching of a number of women. But a spokesperson for Tinio and Kelly, who famously fell asleep at the 2020 Super Bowl and became a laughing stock on social media, told Page Six At a party the night of the concert, Declan drank too much and offended some men and women he was talking to. Following the incident, the spokesperson said he apologized and offered his resignation to Global Citizen. However, multiple insiders say there was more than one incident involving Kelly at the event, and Global Citizen removed him from the board the next day. A Global Citizen insider told us on May 3rd, Global Citizen was notified of the incidents, and on May 3rd, Declan Kelly was removed from the board. An independent investigation into the incidents has been launched by Global Citizen and is still ongoing, we're told. Tineo's philanthropic contribution to the organization was returned and their sponsorship deal ended. Kelly who was Hillary Clinton's US Special Economic Envoy to Northern Ireland from two thousand nine to twenty eleven, on Thursday offered a sobering apology to his staff saying, This incident has been a huge wake up call for me. I immediately quit drinking and am undergoing counseling from healthcare professionals I will never drink again. I have learned hard lessons, and the work that needs to get it done is on me, and I am doing it right now. It will be an ongoing journey that will last the rest of my life. As many of you know, I have temporarily reduced my work responsibilities so I have time to focus on my health. Please know I will be back in full capacity in September and remain as committed as ever to Tenio. He added that should anyone at the firm get any media inquiries, they should forward them to Stephen Meal at Tinio, who, according to their website, has worked closely with a number of major global companies advising on crisis communications reps for Global Citizen declined to comment on the record. The boorish incident raises questions about chair and chief executive Kelly's future at the 1,200-person firm Tineo, which prides itself on helping CEOs finesse their own reputations, as well as advising large companies on how to market themselves as socially responsible. Kelly had already embarrassed the firm at the 2020 Super Bowl in Miami when he fell asleep in the first quarter and was seen on camera snoring with his mouth wide open. The images of Kelly kicked off on social media with a number of big brands poking fun at him, even Coca-Cola, which, embarrassingly, Tenio advises. Maybe he should try and be less white. A Tenio insider said people at the company are frightened by this incident and their CEO's behavior. The staff at Tenio know what happened at the party. It's the talk of the firm. They wonder what Kelly's future is and what is the future of the company. It's a reputation business, after all. The Financial Times reported that Kelly has told senior colleagues at the firm that he is handing some of his duties to others and that he was undertaking ongoing counseling from healthcare professionals. Interestingly, Global Citizens Board is chaired by Chris Stadler, an exec at CVC Capital Partners, who spearheaded the private equity firm's $350 million investment into Tenio in, Detenio in 20, 2009, giving them a majority stake in the company. The Tenio Insider added, interesting that Stadler likely thinks that Kelly's behavior is not appropriate for a global citizen board member, but he's still good enough to lead Tenio, probably because he is still making a lot of money for the CVC. Reps for Stadler and CVC in New York and London did not respond to multiple requests for comment from page six. Instead, they likely leaked the story to the Financial Times. Moving on to September 2021 and the Showbiz 411 by Roger Friedman. We have an article entitled Phony Baloney Global Citizens Reality Show. The Activist Falls Apart Under Scrutiny. When Will Celebs Wake Up? Readers of this column know that I have been telling you about Phony Baloney Global Citizen for years. Years. They do nothing for poverty or hunger. Help no one except themselves. They're a nonprofit with big salaries and expenses. All their money is spent producing rock concerts with musicians, dare I say, who want exposure and some PR that they're doing good. Recently, Global Citizen and CBS announced a reality show called The Activist, which was going to run eight weeks. Then it was cut to five weeks. Then the reality of the show itself leaked out as it seems activists were soliciting money from the public to win another shady deal from Global Citizen. On September 11th, Clover Hogan, a 22-year-old activist, started posting a long thread on Twitter about these scoundrels. She wrote, Earlier this year, I was approached to appear on this show, The Activist. I was contacted by someone looking for passionate activists who are actively engaged in making an impact in the area's environment, health, education, and reducing world hunger. I took a call with them. Hogan's long post about Awful, the experience was ended with this. At the end, he revealed that this would be a competition show with activists going against each other for resources. I remember thinking I was in a Black Mirror episode. When the call ended, I cried and called my mom. The whole time, I was made to feel as if I was failing a test. Clover, who became the whistleblower for this scam, posted a note she subsequently received from someone on the set of the show. The tweeter called the show blatantly superficial. Tonight, CBS announced that they're dumping what they filmed and turning The activists into a docu-series about activism. Good luck. Meantime, Global Citizen has another worldwide concert event planned for next weekend with a bunch of musicians and celebrities who should know better by now. Why they continue to participate in this farce is beyond me. P.S. Global Citizen at Better Hope CBS News doesn't start investigating them. My oh got my stars that was a lot of information but did we learn anything other than i will mispronounce words like it's my motherfucking job or that um don't seem to be fond of the u.n or global citizen or maybe what it really is is that i'm just not interested in things that i'm not interested in i think so i really do I also think that maybe we should make sure that we pay attention to words, try and keep ourselves away from collectivism, and to just, like, know in our souls that the UN, the WEF, and the fucking celebs, they're all in that one big club so eloquently spoken of by the late, great George Carlin.
1: Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers know something they'll get it they'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place it's a big club and you ain't in it you and i are not in the big club by the way it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe all day long beating you over the head in their media telling you what to believe what to think and what to buy the table is tilted folks the game is rigged and nobody seems to notice nobody seems to care Nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day because the owners of this country know the truth.
0: He finishes that riff by saying it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Well, I still believe in the American dream, and I hope you guys do too. Maybe just do me a solid, will you? And be what they don't want. You know, keep your voice loud, make your own noise, be a little more like Carlin. And please, join me on the next Chatting Tonight.